Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to 3RRR, and a big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. We've got you until 12 now for a fair amount of science. Uh, for the three of you who are actually listening to us and not listening to our premier's uh, discussion, I know you three are probably from overseas, uh, Thanks for joining us. Uh, we've got some really good stuff to talk about today. We have astronaut Terry Verts coming back on the show in a few minutes. But first of all, allow me to introduce the rest of the team for today. Dr. Linden, good morning. How are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm very well. I was only up at 12 o'clock and 1 o'clock and 5 o'clock and 6 o'clock last night with my three-month-old, <laughs> so I'm doing great. <laughs> Well, you look very well given that uh, somewhat broken sleep scenario. So well done for getting on the show. I'm very proud of you. Uh, good morning, Dr. Crystal. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Happy Sunday. Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll be a happy Sunday for all of us. I'm, you know what I would love? I would love to have guests back in the studio with me. I mean, Zoom's great, but it would be nice just to be able to chat to them before the show and, you know... Something we something we enjoy here at Triple R is meeting more people. I've got to just hang out with all the hosts from Radiotherapy. It's it's grueling, uh, but they're okay. Anu, good morning. How are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. How's your PhD going down there? You're down at Deakin now during PhD in the pandemic. It's going okay? It's coming along. It's uh, pedal to the metal, straight to the finish line. Yep. Good stuff. Folks, we're going to start off with some news for you. Uh, Dr. Linden, we might start with you just in case you nod off in the next uh, few minutes. We'll get you you can go back to bed. That's very kind of you, Dr. Chen. I can hear crying increasing in volume from here. So maybe it's, it's good that you could uh, start with me. This week, I've been thinking a lot about who listens, who listens to us. Um, why it is that when it comes to COVID, there's nobody listening to us on the radio right now because everybody's listening to uh, Professor Brett Sutton. But when it comes to climate change, you know, if you think about the parallels, both COVID and climate change, scary global risks, global threats um, that you can't really see or touch with your hands that can feel kind of remote in some senses. Both of them communicated with lots of graphs and lots of numbers, but we're checking the daily case numbers every day. We're not really checking the um, the CO2 numbers every day from Kate Grimm down in Tasmania. So I was a little bit disheartened this week to see a paper that was published in uh, Weather, Climate and Society by a couple of researchers from Ohio. And it caught my eye because the title of the paper is Don't Tell Me What to Do. Hmm. And these researchers have taken, uh, they had got about 1,200 people to fill out a survey online and they were split fairly evenly. They were, they were American between Democrats, Republicans and independent voters. And they showed them a series of statements. Climate change is bad and it's us and it's we have to do something about it. Climate change is bad, it's us, and we could do something about it personally, eating less meat, flying less, driving less. Climate change is bad, we have to do something about it, and we should vote for people who have better policies, large-scale actions, right? So they had these, these types of statements. And then they also varied those to have them as blanket statements or have them as statements that said, climate scientists say... 
climate change is happening and it's bad. Climate scientists say we should eat less meat and fly less. Climate scientists say you should vote for someone with good policies, okay? And they wanted to see how people responded to being told what to do or being um, it being mm. suggested to them that they change their personal behaviour as opposed to changing large-scale behaviour and kind of having someone else deal with the problem. And they also wanted to see whether having that trusted source made a difference. And as you could guess maybe from the title of the paper, the response is that if you kind of suggest to people what to do, they, they don't like it. They're not a fan. Across the board, it didn't really matter who they voted for, although the, the changes were larger in the Republican and the independent voters. But if you say change your personal behaviour, people um, were less likely to support statements about action on climate change. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, having a climate scientist title there at the start didn't make people more likely to agree or to, to move towards making action which I think is sort of interesting, particularly, you know, we talk about science every week. You've got two climate scientists on the show, Dr. Shane, because obviously you Mm. wanted to have more climate science conversation. But uh, having that trusted source there when it comes to action, this article suggests that that doesn't really work so much. And there's lots of other research out there that suggests that it's more, you know, hearing from friends or hearing personal stories. There's lots and lots and lots of different other ways but there's a real, uh, Lyndon, there's a, there's a really big difference, I think, to this paper. You know, I, some of these papers, I think, you know, why bother? But um, it, it does sort of point out something for me which is really important. And the reason we have you and Dr. Ailey on the show is because we know, and we see this in vaccination um, responses, that if we educate people and we listen to people rather than telling them what to do and judging them, we'll be successful. And I think that to me is what that paper is really showing is if you just start telling people what they should do without giving them the education as well. And, you know, this needs to be entrenched from early childhood. It can't just be something that you grab some, you know, 50-year-old white guy from Texas and start saying, you know what, you should do this from now on because they just that, that just won't work. So, you know, I think we, we, do, we do have an approach that, that works in other areas. And, you know, if you go down to the Children's Hospital in Melbourne and you look at the way they deal with concerned parents with regards to vaccinations it's about listening and educating it's not about judging and telling and their success rates are extraordinary in terms of getting people to vaccinate and i think this is something in the climate space that we you know i know there's a lot of people doing that really well and you're one of them you know educating wherever possible but there's also there is a lot of telling there's a lot of telling. Now, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm also open to the idea that maybe we've got to the point where we no longer have time to just be educating because things are so disastrous. But, you know, um, it still has to be a very big part of the, the component. Crystal, you wanted to jump in there as well? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, did the paper give you any reflection of what would work or what did work? And you mentioned the importance of friends and family. And again, we've seen this in other areas, um, you know, where those conversations between peers, like peer-to-peer conversations, or where does where does change come from? If it's not going to come from a top-down approach of authorities say this, is it going to come from those round-the-table conversations? Like, did they did the did the paper kind of suggest? Where might, what might work? No, it didn't really talk about those sort of peer discussions or storytelling, those kinds of things. It was very sort of straight down the line. We did this experiment and this mm. is what we found, uh, which I kind of thought it would be nice to share as someone who often kind of says, yeah, but just do this. That That's sort of not the answer. But what, what the paper did suggest is exactly what Shane was saying, that 
sort of saying climate change is bad, so eat less meat. That's not really helpful, but it kind of explaining that, you know, methane is produced by cows and Mm. this is actually a really effective way. The paper talked about lots and lots of different types of misinformation and that old chestnut that individual action doesn't make a lot of difference and all of these kinds of things. The paper touched on that, but I think it's there's a whole other mountain of studies about... Um, personal connections and how they work much better. Yeah. Hey, on the good side of news, uh, I just received a great uh, message from Gabby, and she said we are listening, and science is hotter than Brett Sutton. So we're not completely speaking to no one team. It's it's uh, thanks, th- Gabby. thanks, Gabby. I don't know. <laughs> Brett Sutton. Oh, he's quite a man. He's yeah. yeah. There's something about him. Yeah. Even you know, I got a bit of a subtle man crush there going on too. Especially with that stubble he's got going. I mean, I wish I could get that grey going. I you know, redheaded, so we don't get grey, but sad. Dr. Crystal, uh, if you can pull yourself away from laughing there, what's, what's going on in your world of science? Oh, I saw a fantastic publication uh, this week, which I found really exciting, in um, the Journal of Science Translational Medicine. And it's about um, extracellular vesicles and how they could be used to revive cells following a heart attack. And now, extracellular vesicles, these are, uh, we've talked about them on the show before. You might have heard of um, them called exosomes or virus-like particles. They are small cellular structures. They're subcellular structures. They're smaller than a cell in the body. And they're kind of like cargo pods that sort of shed off from the surfaces of cells in the body. It's a very natural process. You can imagine like a bit of a cell membrane kind of pinching off or or sort of setting sail away from a cell. They're, they're very tiny. They're only about 150 nanometers um, in diameter, but they contain a very complex mixture inside them of, of protein, of, of RNA, of all sorts of um, membranes and lipids and sort of components of the cell that sort of um, just uh, shed off from the cell surface. And people have wondered, people thought they were junk originally. They thought they were like cellular dust or fluff, you know. But more and more we're finding that these extracellular vesicles actually have a really important role in the body. Um, And what's really interesting to me now is how we're thinking about using them therapeutically or how we're using them to sort of understand uh, diseases and how we might intervene in them. And this paper looked at how these extracellular vesicles might be important after a heart attack. And what the scientists did was was use another piece of technology that I'm really passionate and excited about, which is this idea of having an organ on a chip. Dr. Shane, we've had people into the studio to talk about lung on a chip, brain on a chip, and this was a heart on a chip setup. And it's called on a chip because the device that they use kind of looks a bit like a USB, but it almost looks like a bit like a computer chip because it's got all these sort of channels where liquid and cells flow and it sets up the tissues um, and the cells in a 3D environment that's under the sort of physiological forces and pressures that a normal tissue inside the body would be under. So it kind of tries to mimic rather than having cardiac tissue sitting in a petri dish in a lab it sort of tries to mimic the natural habitat that a cardiac cell might sit in so these researchers set up um, a heart on a chip assay that mimicked the conditions in a heart in heart tissue after a heart attack so after a heart attack when you've got low oxygen um, and then you often get this what they call reperfusion injury when kind of the heart comes back to life and all the blood and, and nutrients flow in and oxygen you actually can do more damage and so they set up a little assay on this heart on a chip that kind of mimics those post heart attack conditions and then what they did was 
They wanted to see what effect extracellular vesicles could have to those cells. So they made some extracellular vesicles. And this is a really important bit because extracellular vesicles can be made by all kinds of cells and they're different depending on what cells you make them from. And so these researchers used endothelial cells, which are normally the cells that line the blood vessels. So they're kind of in the in the heart environment. So they took these endothelial cells and they they um they made these extracellular vesicles from those cells. So they're kind of you know, in the cardiac environment mix and they flowed them across the little heart on a chip kind of um, device and to see what effect it would have um, in mimicking these kind of post-heart attack conditions. They found that treatment with these extracellular vesicles, actually only half as many of the cells died, um, yeah. you know, um, on the chip. But the other cool thing about the chip is that the heart tissue can actually contract um, in this kind of uh, assay and they found that following treatment with these extracellular vesicles, they, the contractile force was four times higher after they'd been treated. So it was kind of looking at the fact and you can kind of, it makes a great little story that you know after a heart attack, the endothelial cells send out these little extracellular vesicles and they actually can sort of rescue. They're sending like a little pod of proteins that are involved in metabolism and oxygenation and they sort of rescue and revive the cardiac tissue um, because of, of, of their components, they're very complex components. And so the scientists in this paper actually analysed the protein content and found that those proteins that were inside these little um, rescue pods were actually related to maintaining metabolism. And so I think it's a really great example of how we can now kind of understand what the physiological processes are following a heart attack, but also look at how we might create new therapeutic interventions. Imagine if we could mm. scale up making synthetic extracellular vesicles and then use them as a, as a treatment or a therapy to protect uh, and restore tissues following a heart attack. Yeah, no, that's fantastic stuff. I love all this lab on the chip stuff. Sorry, organ on the chip stuff uh, because there's just – every time you, you hit, read the news now, there's a different one that we're looking at. You know, it's kidneys, it's, it's everything, and it's so much – Yeah, kidney on a chip. And so much, so much of that research is coming out of yeah. Melbourne as well. Yeah. Like we have a real strength in microfluidics and mm. and engineering and some of the really cutting-edge technologies actually coming out of Melbourne. So, you know, it's fantastic to see how we're trying to understand yeah. things in 3D under normal kind of physiological conditions. Yeah, it's very cool stuff. Thanks, Dr. Crystal. Anu, uh, what's going on in the world of space exploration? Hi, Shane. So last week we had a Soyuz launch up to the International Space Station. Yep. We have a second Crew Dragon launch coming up um, early to mid-November as well. Uh, and I believe that they had to delay that. It was meant to happen on Halloween Eve. Mm -hmm. And now it's happening a little bit later because on one of their last Falcon 9 um, launches that was uncrewed, they found some off-nominal uh, data in the gas chamber. So now they're going to try and fix it because of course it's quite high risk to be sending humans up to ISS and we want yep. to make sure that we keep them there safe and return them as well. Um, additionally, Mars. Mars has been quite close to uh, planet Earth in over the last month or so and it has been the closest in the last uh, 15 years, I believe. Um, Mars, the closest ever Mars has been is on record um, was back in 2003. And in another 15 years, we'll have Mars quite close again to Earth. And yes, Lyndon, do you have a question? Uh, I, yeah, I just wanted to ask. I'm the, all my space questions are stupid because I don't know anything about space. But when it comes to um, making that next step to get humans onto Mars, are we 
timing our runs for these periods? You're saying 15 years will be close again. Are we working towards that? So the 15 years are like the closest. Every two years we have a Mars Close approach where um, we're upon the orbits. Do you get, you know, that's kind of like every two years our orbits kind of like get closer and closer together. Uh, What happens every 15 years is the planets actually also align. So we get um, twice twice the distance covered. Um, a little, we get a little bit extra, a little bit more bang for our money, I suppose you could say. Um, and so in 2022, so we've just had one launch. Uh, we've had the Perseverance Rover's Mars 2020 mission head over to Mars. It's going to be collecting some samples and leaving them on the surface. In two years, we're going to have another launch, um, another mission that's actually going to go collect them and then bring them back. So we can actually uh, begin to understand, you know, we're going to have a little bit more um, capabilities back here on Earth with lab equipment, uh, things that the rovers can have over on Mars, things that we can send up. And we're going to be able to analyze and try and understand, did Mars ever hold life? Like, what, 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 what happened? How did it come to be? Yeah, I just love the fact that conceptually, it's kind of like, and Mars is smaller than the Earth, so no doubt it makes it a tiny bit easier. But it's kind of like, uh, Crystal, I left a suitcase out in the Simpson Desert around about here. You're going to have to land there in two years and collect it and bring it back to my house. Like, the you know, the difficulty in the precision required to do that is just mind-blowing to me. I think it's extraordinary that they're actually going to do that. When I first heard about the fact that, oh, no, it's not this mission that's bringing it back. They're going to do it later. I thought, hmm, okay. Um, yep, I get where there's reasons for doing that, but, boy, are they going to have to be spot on with their um, their landing precision, which, you know, to be fair, they have been so far with a lot of the Mars missions have been extraordinary, but that is quite a challenge to do that. Absolutely. It's going to be quite the feat because we've never actually had a return sample. We've never had mm. a return sample back from Mars before. So it's going to be, you know, history in the making. Yeah. Additionally, two years after that, 2024, Elon Musk wants to send to Mars. So we'll have to wait and see how that turns out. Yeah. I'm just thinking of the quarantine period that the samples will have to go through. <laughs> Probably not as bad as what you have to go to when you come into Melbourne. Um, or leave and Melbourne. who's going to be in charge of that quarantine? I won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the only people that might upset currently aren't listening to the program, I suspect. So uh, <laughs> that's a fair comment, Crystal. Well, look, it's all exciting. We're seeing heaps of a bit. Um, thank you all for uh, this morning's news. And uh, we're going to run off to some music in a moment because hopefully soon, and um, I know... Uh, People have heard him on the show before, but uh, Terry Verts, one of the former space shuttle pilots and one of the people who helped construct and then he later commanded the International Space Station will be on the line. If we have, you know, synced our time and our clocks correctly, it can be a little tricky sometimes with these international calls. But um, Anu, Crystal, Lyndon, have a great Sunday. I hope uh, when you get off this call, you can all go and watch the news and, um, and, you know, see if there's some good outcomes and we can all maybe travel a little bit further in Melbourne. So great to chat. Great to see you, Shane. No way I'm sticking with science. See you guys. All right, folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in a few minutes, uh, hopefully talking to Terry Burtz. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. On the line with me now is Terry Verts. He's one of the former space shuttle pilots, and he led, the, uh, led part of the construction of the International Space Station and also was the commander of that space station for quite a while. Welcome back, Terry. How are you going? 
I am doing well. How's it going down under? Yeah, look, we're, we're doing all right. We're uh, here in Melbourne. We're about to hopefully partially at least, or maybe, we're not sure, come out of lockdown from uh, the COVID scenario. How's that going over there for you guys? It's been, um, it's just been this the continuous stream of 2020. Mm. <laughs> I think you just have to use 2020 as an adjective. Um <laughs> You know, it's up in this state, it's down in that state, and it's been coming and going. Uh, I think a lot of states are going to are starting to see resurgences, and I kind of just sit here. I'm in my office right now, as you can see on Zoom, and and uh, do email and Zoom calls all day. So I've been working from home for six months and getting the bug to get get out and do stuff like every probably several billion other humans mm. <laughs> on Earth. Yeah. Well, I suppose you've, um, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before, but you, you've had a different sort of uh, experience of isolation in your life with regards to, you know, some of your, your work in space. I mean, does this compare or are they complete? I guess you are very busy in both circumstances, but how do they compare the right. two? They compare very well, actually. Back in March, I wrote a short book called Stranded because uh, when I was in space, we had a series of cargo ships blow up and that ended up causing me to get stranded and mm. we didn't know how long we were going to be. We were low on supplies and uh, it ended up being a month extension. So I wrote like 10 lessons that I learned. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of similarities, believe it or not, between getting stuck in space and, and 2020 on earth. Yeah. Now today uh, we, we had a bit of a chat about today a few weeks back and we figured it would be good for us to have what I suppose is loosely described as a bit of a geek out on some uh, some old, or, well, recent and, and old space films that we're both sort of enjoyed and, and just to get your perspective a bit on these. And I, I subjected my partner to the viewing of the 1983 version of The Right Stuff uh, over the last few days, which I think, uh, I'm not sure if you would agree, but it's about a three, three and a quarter hour film, which if it came out today would probably be edited back a little bit it's um you know it's a fairly long-winded film but uh this is a film uh, philip kaufman directed and it has a huge cast for those of you who haven't seen it, it's got barbara hershey it's got dennis quaid ed harris scott glenn sam shepherd how did you see this film in terms of its i suppose it's its accuracy not just in terms of the um actual events going on but the the mood i suppose of what things were like in the late 50s and early 60s in terms of the space program yeah, so I wasn't around then, but um, in high school, actually, I read the book, The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe, yep. and it was amazing. It blew me away. I loved it, and it taught me how to be an astronaut. I didn't know. I didn't. I wasn't born into the royal family of astronauts or anything, so um, it gave me that fighter pilot and then test pilot and then astronaut path, which is what I ended up doing, and it, it was just awesome. And then years later, I ended up at NASA, and I'm going through the interviews and we're doing these crazy medical tests and, you know, everybody's kind of eyeing each other because everybody wants the job and there's way too many people and not enough jobs. And it was so similar. I mean, it was amazing. Luckily we didn't have that needle in the hand scene, you know, yeah. we didn't do that. <laughs> um, they didn't do the sperm count. They didn't, they, they're not checking that. And uh, there was a couple of things that they didn't do, but most of the stuff they do. And in fact, in my book, I've got a new book out called how to astronaut. And um, I talk, one of the stories I tell is, doing this carbon dioxide test. Basically, you just breathe into a plastic bag. That's how, or paper bag, that's how, <clears throat> that's the high-tech NASA training for carbon dioxide awareness, what it feels like. And uh, we were sitting there staring at each other, you know, seeing who could last the longest. The docs were yelling, it's not a competition. Once you feel your symptoms, just stop. And I, I'm like, 
there's no way I'm going to stop before these other guys stop. I'm not going to let them beat me. You know, so it was exactly, it was in so many ways, it was just like the right stuff. Yeah. I think one of the things I suppose that's, um, it's interesting about the film is when you, when you look at some of those medical tests and you, you refer to this one scene for those of uh, our listeners who haven't seen it, where they essentially poke a giant needle into the side of um, the, the participant's hand and you see some sort of spasming and so forth of the hand and then eventually they all leave that room one by one and they sort of have this limp hand that they can no longer hold uh, upright <laughs> yes. and you, you're sort of you're watching the film thinking what was that for um, what part of the, the the program was that for but I suppose I mean Terry you must have experienced scenarios where you know training in a scenario on earth where everything is upright where you feel your normal weight is sort of very different to what you would experience when you're actually in space and you're often, you know, doing controls upside down and so forth, which was one of the things that was depicted well in that film, how that training was done. Yeah, absolutely. In in fact, um, you know, for years and years and years, almost a decade, I had been doing space shuttle training before my first flight. And when I finally got to fly, when you climb into the shuttle, it's on, it's it's upright, right? Mm. So it's not in the normal landing attitude. And it was just so disorienting to crawl into this thing that I had spent probably hundreds or thousands of hours in the simulator. And all of a sudden I had no idea which way it was up just because they rotated at 90 degrees. So it's really easy to get disoriented. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's one of those things where there must have been circumstances too once once you're actually in orbit and, and weightless where you were you know using the controls and so forth where you weren't seated and from all different orientations, I, I expect. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things, um, one of the great things about space is that you can just flip yourself upside down. You can put yourself in the attitude you need to be in to do some work. So, you know, I used to do a lot of work on my car. It just sucks going under the car and you got to lift up and your hands get tired and it's, you know, it's really awkward. Well, in space, you can just flip yourself around or rotate the thing Mm. and it makes it a lot easier. And a lot of times you'd open up a panel, go diving into this piece of equipment, work on it. And then whenever I would come out, it would always take my brain about two or three seconds to figure out which way was up. And then it was good. And it was a really interesting process to to feel my brain going through this. Okay. Which way's up? Which way's I recognize that panel. I recognize that panel. I recognize that floor. Okay. There it is. Mm. And it was literally two or three seconds every single time. And then it would figure it out. Yeah. One of the things that struck me in the film, and you can sort of speak to this from your experience, but back then it seemed to me as though, you know, the Mercury pilots, of which you know there ended up being the Mercury Seven, it, right. it was almost as if them getting into that program was safer than them being in their normal test pilot jobs, where so many of those pilots <laughs> were dying, and and all of a sudden, you know, this extremely unsafe scenario of going into space was was something that seven of them went into, and and during that part of the program, at least, they all survived. Um, what was it like in terms right. of? I mean, for you when you were getting into the the space shuttle program, you know, what was the OHS scenario like in terms of the risk profile and that they were giving you, and and what you knew about? that yeah so one of the things one of my goals as an air force pilot was not to have a street or an elementary school named after me (laughs) Um, every air force base has lots of streets and and schools named after you know pilots who crash so um and when you fly into space you know it's not like crazy dangerous it's not world war ii bombers going over schweinfurt or anything like that but you know, we lost two out of 135 shuttles. So that's more than 1%. 
if you were getting on an airliner and they mm. said, oh, there's a 99% chance of you surviving, the airline, no one would be flying airlines, even if there wasn't COVID, right? So yeah. the, the danger is like way higher than anything that most 20th century, 21st century people face. And it's also unknown because the numbers are so small. You could say the Mercury guys all survived, but there was only six missions. Yeah. And so, you know, and the Apollo all survived, but there was only roughly 10 or so. But they didn't all survive. The, yep. the first crew died on a ground test. And so um, there's definitely an element of danger. And, and as we're starting to fly space tourists, the one thing I say is, you know, you got the best team behind you. They're doing the best job they can. But you're going thousands of miles an hour with tons of high explosives exploding behind you. So, you know, the word safe doesn't apply to that. The goal is to make it less dangerous, but I don't think you can ever call it actually safe. <laughs> yeah. I suppose it's one of those things when we think of all, all sorts of extreme sports, you, you, you really, right. you know, you go hang gliding. There really is no way to make it 100% safe. There's always a chance you're going to get caught or something's going to go bad in that environment. Well, that wingsuiting is crazy. I Unfortunately, a friend of mine died uh, a couple of years ago and we all had dinner one night with my buddies and we said, look, man, you got to stop doing this. Like he showed mm. us this video, he ran into a tree and he said, you got to stop doing it. But he was just pushed. You know, there was this need for speed and he ended up dying. And uh, so there's some things that are, you're just not going to survive. There was a movie free solo, um, super popular in America. A guy mm -hmm. climbed El Capitan with no ropes or anything. You, you can't do that day after day year after yeah. year you're gonna die you know yeah. you, you might get lucky once but you don't want to tempt fate more than once yeah you sooner know, or later some, some things are just too dangerous yeah indeed now um the the film of course um you know it, it tells that great story of alan shepard and you know being the first american in space and of course you, for many people may not be aware that he also walked, walked on the moon in 1971 which you know must have been a, a long time between drinks for him right yeah did right. you ever get to meet him Terry? I never did. He he passed away before I became an astronaut, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. Um, now, the other we, – we have this little list, you and I, of films we were going to talk about. But the other one that's come out just um, in the last uh, year, I suppose, is the more documentary-orientated film of Apollo 11. And right. this, this was really interesting to me because this is a very uh, sort of subdued documentary in a way. There isn't any of the Hollywood fanfare – in the film that you would you would expect, um, the actors in the film are Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins, and you know, and Deke Slayton, and all the people involved in in the moon landing at the time. Um, I mean, what right. what were your thoughts on this? Because to me, it seemed like a, a very a very well put together series of imagery from the time. It was just amazing. Uh, it's all original footage. They when they were going through some NASA archives, they found a bunch of, I think, 35 millimeter film, really the big film. And uh, it was like never before seen footage. They spent a lot of time restoring that footage and then telling a story. There's no voiceover. There's mm. no narration. There's no acting. It's all real world stuff. Um, the soundtrack is absolutely spectacular. In fact, um, I made a movie. I directed a film last year called One More Orbit. And um, when and I had my own soundtrack, and I told the the musician, "Hey, I love Apollo. I love Interstellar, and I love Apollo Eleven. So that was like the inspiration for our our film for One More Orbit soundtrack. When I watched that for the first time, I went to the movie theater. It was only in theaters for like yep. a week or two. Yep. The CNN film, but it's you know it's unbelievable. 
I saw it on the big IMAX screen. And I was literally more nervous watching Buzz and Neil launch on Apollo 11 than I was launching on Endeavor on my, on my wow. own launch from, from pad 39A. Same launch pad, you know, 30 years or 40 years later. I was more nervous watching that documentary. It was so well done. It's just, if you haven't seen Apollo 11, it's a CNN film by T- Todd Douglas Millers, the director. Mm. Um, I've, I've gotten to do a couple panels with him, things like this, and an amazing guy, amazing film. That was a really good film. Yeah, I think one of the things that I, I sort of took away from that, having watched it, was that I didn't question anything that I saw in the film. You know, whenever you watch any of these films, you think, did that really happen? Right. You know, was that you know, is that how it went down? You know, did those guys really fight that way? You know, a lot of a lot of the films there's so much dramatization to to make what is already an interesting story interesting, which I find odd and sort of lazy filmmaking in a way sometimes. But that film there was no question as to the legitimacy of what you were viewing. It, and it was I mean it wasn't in real time. The real mission took mm. a week, but it's just so good. It's so good. If you want to, you know, show you show your kids what these guys did in 1969. Alan Shepard, well, Yuri Gagarin flew. A couple weeks later, Alan Shepard flew, and then eight less than eight and a half years later, a little over eight years later, Buzz and Neil are walking on the moon, mm. talking to the dish, by the way, down in Australia. Yep. Um, but you know, that's just amazing how quickly they do that. When you look at how long it takes NASA to do things now, we have this rocket called SLS. It was born over 15 years ago. It's still in development. It's still a few years out. When it flies, it's only going to be the first stage. It won't be the second stage. So it's just amazing how slowly we do things today compared to what what they did then. And they didn't have any experience. They didn't have iPhones. They didn't have Outlook. You know, they didn't have all the quote unquote modern tools that we have um it's really impressive great film apollo 11 is a great film yeah one one of the things that uh, one of the scenes that always catches me is when they show you footage of the nasa computer and it is just this giant (laughs) room of cabinets you know that are six feet six seven feet high and you know just paper printouts everywhere and and you know with less computing power than your average average sort of apple watch or phone and yep. you just I'm, lose. I'm holding up an iPhone. Yeah, here. yeah. Yes. And this is just, um, you know, that was what they had. But there was so much, um, you know, so much capability in the people that they they managed right. to do it. When when, when you watch the uh, the movie, Buzz is talking just minutes before touching down on the moon. They start getting these errors. Mm. I think something two eleven and two twelve or something like that. Um, and that the computer was just maxed out. The computer was saying, you know the little hourglass was spinning on an Apollo. That's yeah. what that was. Yep. And, they, and they, they had never simulated that. The flight was like, what is this? And the computer flight controller was having to flip through his paper, you know, and anyway, it's, it's just such a good story. It's a great story. It's yeah. A timeless movie. Yeah. Now going back a little bit further, of course, um, uh, you know, not that long after Apollo 11 came Apollo 13, which was, you know, many people be aware was the mission that never made it to landing on the moon, but certainly you know orbited or didn't orbit, but went around the moon, um, and of course was very very close to losing the astronauts at the time. And Ron Howard made a fantastic film out of this in 1995, starring Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, Kevin Bacon, you know Gary Sinise, and Ed Harris, who I love. You know he played um, John Glenn back in The Right Stuff, and then right. played Gene Kranz, I think. Yeah, I think in um, uh, yeah, 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 mm-hmm. it, uh, yeah, or Gene Kranz or Dick G- Slayton. 
Anyway. No, no Gene Katz. Yeah, he played, was a flight director. Yeah, yeah. played the flight yeah. director in Apollo 13. Um, I mean, this, this was another great example. I think a great example of in a sense, Hollywood doing that well, because that was, uh, there was a real sense of adventure and so forth in that film, even though the, the mission, some would say, wasn't successful, although successfully brought them back safe. The successful failure. So the thing I love about that film, it's real. It's not CG. Mm. And they filmed it in something called the Vomit Comet. It's an airliner. You know, it pulls up really s- steep, and then the pilot pushes over, and you get about 20 seconds of floating, when the nose is really pointed at the earth, pilot pulls back, you get smashed on the ground, and you do these parabolas, this porpoising motion, and you get about 20 or 20 seconds of weightlessness you know, every minute or two. And uh, they had to film that movie in that airplane. And so guys were barfing. They had to rebuild the, the capsule and the cockpit inside the airplane. Um, they had to really plan out how they're going to film it, where's the camera guy going to be. And you only have a minute in between scenes. And so that was... I just love the planning that went into filming that. Mm. And the astronauts were really floating. Tom Hanks and Kevin Bacon are floating. And that was that was my favorite part of that. I mean, movies like Gravity and I which I love Chivo, the guy that shot it, it's amazing. He won an Academy Award for that. But at the end of the day, it was an animated film. Yep. Um I, I like I prefer real over electronic. So I I really loved Apollo thirteen. Plus the story is incredible. Yeah. It's an amazing story. Kids you know, kids now, or even if you're in your 20s or 30s, you probably don't know that story. Um, it's a it's a story worth telling and telling over and over again. Mm, yeah, now it's an exceptional one. Now, one of the other films, um, we'll take a break at the moment, but one of the other films you mentioned just before, and you know, my my background's physics, so I I particularly like some elements of this. Was the film Interstellar with Matthew McConaughey and and Anne Hathaway, which um, what was it, 2014, uh, Christopher Nolan, big budget film. But quite unusual, I think, to bring so much heavy-duty science into a, a blockbuster film of that type. And that, um, you know, interestingly, really brought in some new elements of, you know, around black holes, of time dilation, all sorts of things we don't normally see. Love it. It's not a Marvel comic movie. It's mm. not a DC comic movie. It is um, – and, you know, at its heart, Interstellar is a story about a father and a daughter, yep. which is why I love it. I've got it. Uh, on my iTunes and I watched that movie over and over again. When I was in space, it came out just before I launched and I love the soundtrack. The Hans Zimmer soundtrack is amazing. That was the other, like I said, when I made my own movie, One More Orbit, I, I said, I love Apollo 11 and I love Hans Zimmer. And so those were the two influences on our on our soundtrack. Yeah, I love the fact so you, gave your, that- you gave your your composer, you know, just, just do something like what Hans Zimmer, you know, there's no pressure there. Just be like Hans Zimmer. Yeah, one of the greatest composers <laughs> in film history. Yeah, just be like Hans Zimmer. No problem there at all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, but I got the soundtrack when I was in space. They they uplinked the MP3 file. And I went to sleep. I put my headset on and plug it into my laptop and just float while sleeping to the Interstellar soundtrack. And I mean, and now on my iPhone, I'll turn it on at night, set it next to my bed and just let it play while i drift off to mm. sleep uh, it, it never gets old it takes me back to space when i hear that soundtrack i close my eyes and i'm on the space station 
And um, there's so many things. Do we have time now or after the break? You could talk about that movie for an hour. Yeah, look, I mean, one one of the things, I'm interested in your perspective on this, but that was the first film where a modern vision of what a black hole would actually look like to us was represented in film. So everyone's used to seeing the, I guess you'd call it the circling the drain, water circling the drain type image of what a black hole looks like. But this film, for the first time, used very sophisticated modelling to show us what a black hole would look like. And I think in everything since then, that imagery has now been used, which is you know, a real a real change um, from you know something that's been the same for a very long time. It was. And the physics behind it are really cool. And actually, in How to Astronaut, the, the new book, I wrote a chapter about time travel and about why I'm seven milliseconds younger than I would have otherwise been. So Einstein had general and special relativity. I always get the two confused. Mm. But one of them means you have time dilation or time slows down if you're going fast. And the other one, I think special. And then general, I think, is the acceleration. So if you're accelerating, time slows down. And actually being in the presence of gravity is the same thing as acceleration. It's the same thing. So in the movie, the crew is trying to find another planet where we could live on. And unfortunately, one of them is right next to a black hole. Um, so in reality, there would be no, it would just be destroyed. But, you, you know, you got to have a movie. So they go to this planet. And unfortunately, they're really close to the black hole for just a few minutes. But when they get back to their spaceship that's far away, the dude on the spaceship has aged like 40 years. And they're only an hour older. And that's mm. the, that's the uh, general relativity, right? So yep. in the presence of strong acceleration, time slows down. So it kind of bends your brain and the way they were trying to describe time um that was mind bending you know he was in that um kind of psychedelic piano string world and he was communicating with his daughter and i never really figured that thing completely out yeah that was the the first time i saw it was in russian language and that was (laughs) man i'm like i think he's i think there's a black hole and i'm not sure what's going on here and then i saw it in space in english and i was like oh that's what was going on yeah i love the context of you actually watching that while you're in space that must have been pretty cool well uh terry let's take a short break for some music and we'll come back we've got a couple of other things to discuss including your role when you were on star trek um which uh, i'm I'm pretty sure you're pretty proud of folks we're going to take a short break for some uh, music and we'll be back uh continuing this discussion with terry Burtz in just a few minutes you're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein the Gogo on 3 Triple R. We are chatting with Terry Virts. Uh, me and him are just chatting about a whole lot of films. We thought that we'd do that because it's Saturday night for him and Sunday morning for me. And why not? Um, now, Terry, one of the things that you got to do, uh, which uh, I suspect a lot of people aren't aware of, um, because not that many astronauts end up doing this, but you were in an episode of Star Trek Enterprise back in, what, I'm guessing about 2005-ish, four, something around that time? It was five, yeah. So it was the last episode ever of Star Trek, the TV series Star Trek. It was Enterprise until the new one. There's the new hmm. Star Trek Discovery. There's new STD, yeah. Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunate um, acronym. Yeah, It is, unfortunate name. But uh, so uh, my friend, Mike Fink, I had worked for him. I was like his ground support guy while he was in space. And while he was in space, he had talked to Scott Bakula, who was captain of the Enterprise. Hmm. 
So I flew him out there. We did a talk at Boeing for some, uh, just to talk to the employees, thank them for making a rocket engines and so on. And then we went to Paramount Studios and where they were filming the last episode. And the producer, you know, Mike was like, hey, can Terry get on the show, blah, blah, blah. And he was cranky. He was like, if we got a flight suit that fits them, blah, blah, blah. So we, we hung around <laughs> for like 10 hours. Uh, they fed us In-N-Out Burger, which is this iconic hamburger. And, and um, I got like two seconds. It was really cool. I was stood there. I was flipping a switch. I was next to Mike. And he looks up and says, yes, sir, to one of the c- crew. And uh, that was my moment of fame. So literally for probably five years of my career, if you Googled my name, the only thing that came up was Star Trek Enterprise. Like <laughs> nothing about NASA, nothing about flying f It was just the fact I'd been on Enterprise. And then I had all these other Star Trek connections. Um, when they came out with a new series of movies, the Christopher Pine mm, yep. movies, Christopher Nolan, I think, um, uh, they made a box, DVD box set. So I did like the DVD extras for Star oh, Trek. Oh, right, right. So I, think I, was... I, I made that yeah, yeah, in, we'll... the, in the big box series. And then when I was in space, I was doing th- three spacewalks in a week. And the day before the last one, the NASA PAO people called up and said, hey, um, Leonard Nimoy died. You know, mm-hmm. Mr. Spock passed away. So can you do something? And I didn't know what to do. So I ran down to the cupola. I did a picture with the, the Vulcan salute, you know, live long and prosper. And I tweeted it, no name, no words, no nothing. I just tweeted that picture. And it got like millions of views. It got mm. massive global and no one know, knew it was me. It wasn't had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with Leonard Nimoy and Mr. Spock. So I've had this weird career of Star Trek connections that I never thought I would have. Yeah. Well, see, even in your, um, your, your very short period of time on the episode of Enterprise, as long as you don't tell people how long it went for, they'll assume you're in half the series. So, you know, I think you just exactly. got to describe it the right way to <laughs> get, the, <laughs> get the right amount of cred. Um, now, uh, moving on from, from films and, and television, uh, I mean, I'm sure you're very on top of the fact that um, there's been announcements by NASA and, and the U.S. government of returning uh, to the moon in 2024 and putting the first first woman on the moon at that time. I mean, what are your thoughts about that? Because this is a, you know, it's been over 50 years and we're going back. Yeah. Well, I think it's about time. Uh, I do like the idea of going to the moon next as opposed to Mars direct. I think Mars is the is kind of the 21st century goal for people. But um, it's a long way, and the moon's only a few days away. So I think if you're going to have a build-up approach, I think the moon makes sense as a testing ground and a and a first stop. Mm. Um, but I I think <laughs> you know these programs can cost money, and and because of COVID, then the American debt has just exploded. I mean, our national debt is is going to be more than 100% of our GDP, which it hasn't been since World War II. And we're not going to be able to pay it down the way we did after World War II. So I think the, we have to get smarter about doing public-private partnerships and and being smarter about how we spend this money because, you know, in the coming years and decades, it, there's not going to be a, a big boon of extra money to spend on mm. projects like this. Yeah. Now, we're, we're going to talk about your, your book and new projects in a sec, but just before we do, are you aware that NASA has a competition going at the moment for designing the toilet for, uh, for the moon mission? And, I mean, you must have a bit to say about that. I did not know that, but I'm glad they're doing that. That is a – I'll tell you what. I, one thing I can say, that's a very important piece of equipment. And um, – so, and it was, it's one of the pieces of equipment that you don't want to, uh, you don't want to mess up. I mean, when I, when I was up there, we have a checklist for everything. And I, 
followed the toilet checklist religiously, um, at least at first. Eventually, I there's a couple times when I didn't, and I have some funny stories in this in this book about that. Um, but that's one piece of equipment you don't want to screw up. Yeah, indeed. Now, tell us about the book because uh, we mentioned it briefly the last time you were on air with us. Um, it is now available. I know I, I ordered it on Amazon. I think uh, I'm not sure whether the post will ever get here to Australia again, but uh, I'm sure it'll oh, yeah. turn up at some stage. But uh, yeah, give us, give us a bit about the book. <coughs> it is. Um, How to Astronauts, the name. It just came out a couple weeks ago in the States, uh, hopefully in Australia soon. But you can order it on Amazon, and I always encourage people to go to their local bookstore um, just because mm, they need yep. support. But, uh, of course, like Amazon and the big sellers do it. It's a book that is 51 short chapters. It's about all aspects of space travel. I tried to write something that would be fun. I wanted people to say wow and laugh. Those were the two objectives that I had. And uh, it's something that is supposed to be – I wrote it for anybody, you know, it's for men and women, it's for young and old. You don't have to be a space nerd. You don't have to be, you know, this expert. You don't have to be a quantum physicist um, in order to understand all the stuff in the book. So uh, hopefully it's a fun, you know, 51 things you'd expect and a bunch of stuff you wouldn't expect too, uh, different aspects of space travel. Yep. And uh, film projects, what's going on there? So I got a couple. Um the big one, a movie called uh, One More Orbit that I filmed last year. Uh, we set a world record flying around the planet. So I'm comparing flying and orbiting in space with orbiting in this airplane. We went over the North Pole and South Pole. But it's really about how exploration can bring people together. Um, Apollo, you know, brought a lot of people around the world together. And the uh, One More Orbit did too. We had eight people from eight different nations and, uh, you know, we got along really well. There's a little bit about climate change in there. We flew over the North Pole and not a lot of ice down there. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, it's a fun movie. You know, I, what it really is is the antidote for 2020. Yeah. Because it's like this. It's a fun adventure. It's not the politics that's going on now. It's not COVID. It's not all these bad things. Um, it's like a po- – and there's a message for hope. So mm. uh Hopefully, hopefully, folks will enjoy it. Yep. When's that available, Terry? It just came out last week, but only in the U.S., Canada, and a couple of European countries. I'm not sure when it's going to be available in Australia. Um, it's on like iTunes and Amazon yep. and 20 different pay-per-view things, but it may not be available in Australia. Yeah, yet. we'll keep I'll an let eye. You know when it comes. Keep an eye out for yeah. it. Well, Terry, look, it's been absolutely a lot of fun looking uh, back at some of these films and chatting to you again. Uh, we hope to get you out here to Australia as soon as we are, we are taking um, planes again. I know uh, there's a lot of restrictions at the moment, but uh, things here are looking – Australia's looking like a pretty good place to go at the moment with COVID. We've got our numbers down to almost nothing. Yeah, I think Australia is always a good place to go, yeah. especially now. Yeah. My, my manager is Australian. She lives in the bush with her husband. And uh, so she's, in fact, she just told me this weekend that they've got a, a group that wants to bring me down there to do some film and TV stuff. So Fantastic. hopefully I'll be down there soon. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for chatting to us. Uh, stay safe and hopefully we'll see you here uh, in the actual studio, maybe uh, in the new year. Yeah, let's do it. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Terry. Um, folks, uh, we're almost out of time here. So, uh, we are going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It. 
Um, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and uh, hopefully I'm not sure what's been going on while I've been on air, but hopefully the restrictions in Melbourne have been easing somewhat as a result of the Premier's um, speech uh, just over the last hour. But until next week, um, stay safe, and we will be back in exactly seven days, minus one hour, to chat to you about more science. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.